Leviticus chapter 16 will be our text. So I want to kind of go back to the Holy of Holies, back to where we left off in Leviticus 16 last week. As we go back to the book, I can't help but think of what it must have been like to go into the tabernacle for the first time, for the first day of atonement. Aaron's sons were just struck dead, and and Aaron was given instructions for the proper way to bring sin before God to be atoned for. So walking where his children had just recently laid lifeless, laid low by God, and now he's going to go into the very presence of that God to account for sin. I'm sure he didn't sleep at all the night before. The sort of cold sweat that likely rolled down his back, the the shaking of his nerves in awful fear, the feeling of terror would have been real. He had to be sure to follow the rituals very, very closely. It's likely that all of Israel would have had this portion of Scripture memorized. Certainly the priests and the high priests after Aaron did. For coming to the presence of God is a very serious matter. And why? Because he is too pure to be in the presence or to look upon a sinner, Habakkuk 1.13. The presence of sin in front of God makes him angry. For God is angry with the wicked every day, Psalm 7.11. Impurity in our day is manically tolerated. People quickly excuse their sins with the gesture, well, no one is perfect or I'm only human, as if these suffice to account for their shortcomings. This is a common human coping mechanism with imperfection and sin. We see sin on every street corner, on every TV station, in every newspaper, and no longer is sin something to be ashamed of, but it is paraded around as the norm and flaunted and rewarded. Sin gets the attention of entertainment, celebration, and even parades. The problem is people do not realize that the sins that they see as small and marginal are heinous in the eyes of a holy God. God hates sinners. Now, that is objectionable to most people's ears. They want a God who is only love who then in turn would not really be holy because holiness demands that God hates sinners. They may settle for a God who loves the sinner but hates the sin. You've likely heard that before. However, that is a compromise that Scripture will not allow. Psalm 11, verse 5, The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. It says his soul hates. There's nothing more to a person than their very soul. And what these texts are telling us is what was true of of Aaron and his sons before him, that going into the presence of God as a sinner is a terrifying thing. And if you're honest with yourself, you must realize it's also talking about you. You see, all the death, all the bloodshed that we looked at in the Levitical law last week makes it unmistakably clear God is angry with the wicked. Now, that should not be misunderstood to mean that God is out of control like some juvenile temper tantrum or a you know, dissatisfied toddler. No, it is the purposeful and precise fury towards creatures who rebelliously deserve his wrath on account of his impeccable holiness and their total depravity. 
you must remember, even your sin is not, not merely breaking God's law, a, a slight penal infraction. It's also a personal violation. Sin is not merely the transgression of God's law. It is the defamation of God's character. You see, people made in the image of God would rather spit on his face than reflect his glory. And that is what it is like every time that you sin. And guess what? God is dreadfully provoked. There's simply no getting around the fact that God's wrath cannot be bought off. His anger cannot be placated with money, with good works, with sincere motives. You cannot please this God. That being the case, what could possibly be done about it? Is there anything that can change this God's angry disposition towards you? Is there a way to extinguish the holy fire of God's hatred? Indeed, there is, which is what we found in our text last week. So let's look again at Leviticus 16. So back to the Holy of Holies. We'll be picking up in verse 14. In the first 13 verses, we saw three essential principles for a pure priest. The priest needed to be a clean representative. We saw that in the changing of the clothes from the dazzling garb to the white linen of a slave. We saw that in the ceremonial washings. Second, the high priest needed to be a pure substitute. In order for him to act on behalf of the people, he needed to be pure, which we saw with the slaughtering of the bull for his own sins. And finally, we saw the fact that the priest needed to be a flawless intercessor, symbolized by the intercessory prayer going up before the face of God by means of the smoke that filled the Holy of Holies. In all this, we saw how Aaron and all the priests after him were inferior and incapable of filling this role that Jesus did. But today, in the remainder of the chapter, I want to draw our attention to the necessity of a pure sacrifice. So last time we saw that Christ was the pure priest, and today I want to see how he is not only the pure priest, but also the pure sacrifice. And we will do this by way of contrast, again, with the inferior types found in Leviticus 16, 14 to 34. So this morning we're going to venture more into the theological nature, the results of a pure sacrifice, what they bring about. And so let me give you my outline. So three results from a pure sacrifice. First, the propitiatory sacrifice, we'll see that in verses 14 to 19. Second, an expiatory sacrifice in verses 20 to 28. And then finally, a permanent sacrifice in 29 to 34. So those are the three results for the outline. Propitiation, expiation, and permanence. Let me read the beginning of our text. So Leviticus 16, 14 to 19, a propitiatory sacrifice. Moreover, he shall take of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. Also in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat." He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgression in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting, which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out. 
that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and take some of the blood of the bull and the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar on all sides. With his finger, he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and cleanse it from the impurities of the sons of Israel and consecrate it. When I say, what do I mean when I say the word propitiatory sacrifice? What does that mean? The English word propitiation etymologically means the place of reconciliation. So propitiation refers to the place in which sinful men are reconciled to a holy God. And as we have briefly seen, what is necessary for reconciliation with this God, his wrath needs to be satisfied to the strict demands of his moral purity, his justice. We could say propitiation is more specifically the place in which God's wrath is satisfied, bringing true reconciliation between God and sinful men. Where is this place? Under the old covenant, Aaron and the Israelites knew exactly where, inside the Holy of Holies, in the very presence of God. So having already entered into the Holy of Holies once to offer incense, Aaron could then head back out to obtain some blood from the bull that he killed as a sin offering, and then back into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the blood, its blood on the mercy seat. That's the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Then he was instructed to sprinkle it and wipe it on the east side of the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat seven times. Why seven times? Seven was seen as a symbol for perfection. Therefore, this represents the nature of God's perfect and complete forgiveness. Next, Aaron would leave the Holy of Holies again to retrieve the goat that was selected as the, uh, by the lot to be sacrificed to God. As we saw last time, Aaron would place his hand on the goat's head indicating imputation of guilt to the animal and slaughter it. Just like the bull, Aaron had to take the sacrifice past the veil into the very presence of God, sprinkling it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat as well. Now, why did he need to sprinkle the blood like this? The purpose of sprinkling blood was twofold. First, bringing the blood past the veil would cleanse the temple itself. That's Leviticus 16, 16 we saw. It explains that the very presence of the people in or around the tabernacle brought impurities, transgressions, and sin into proximity with God and defiled his dwelling place. You see, throughout the year, the tabernacle would kind of accumulate, in a sense, unconfessed sin by virtue of the fact that sinful men were in and around it. So in order for God to dwell in the midst of his people, the house of the Lord required annual blood cleansing. A second reason for this blood sprinkling was to represent the fact that death had occurred. This is the rightful punishment due on account of sin. Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. Someone had to die, a life for a life. James 1.15 says that when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And we saw that in the garden when we looked at that text, the threatening that if they disobey God, they would surely die, Genesis 2.17. Death is the necessary byproduct of God's anger being poured out against sinners. So you see these sin offerings, the bull for Aaron and the sacrificial goat for the people were the payment for sin. God's wrath 
will not be revoked. It cannot be mitigated by time, forgetfulness. You cannot pay something valuable enough to appease God's wrath. His wrath must be paid by death. So the only hope sinners have is for it to be redirected. But as we see in Scripture, God is not merely a God of wrath only. He is also gracious, and he provides a way to redirect his wrath onto another. Our text shows us the shadow by which God demonstrated this to Israel, which was by sacrificing animals to whom sin guilt had been symbolically imputed. And by the shedding of their lifeblood all over the mercy seat represented the fact that the guilty party had been crushed to death. His anger was exacted upon the substitute rather than the sinner, thereby allowing his disposition towards the sinner to be that of favor rather than fury. God propitiated. The satisfaction of God's wrath, known as propitiation, is the atonement. It's why it is called for on the day of atonement, the, the day God's wrath is placated on behalf of sinners. The Greek word for propitiation is helisarion, which means literally the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which is where atonement occurred. You see, the Ark was where the blood, or the sacrifice's blood was sprinkled. It was where God dwelt among his people on the day of atonement in what is called the Shekinah glory. But when you come to the New Testament, you see the word propitiation isn't referring to the lid of the ark anymore. No. Why? What's it referring to? Why is it not referring to the lid of the ark of the covenant? Because the lid of the ark, the blood splattered there was merely a type pointing to the actual sacrifice that brought propitiation, Jesus Christ himself. He is the sacrifice. Romans 3.25, Jesus was displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. In other words, when it comes to atonement, Jesus is not only the high priest, he's also the proverbial mercy seat. He not only makes propitiation as a priest, he is the instrument of propitiation through his death. He is the sacrifice. So when it comes to the propitiatory work of Christ, there is one illustration I can't help but draw from his final moments of life that kind of help us to understand the comprehensive way he satisfied God's wrath. Luke twenty-two forty-two, Jesus says this, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will be done, but yours. Remove this cup from me. Speaking from his humanity, Jesus knew that the suffering he was about to endure would be far worse than could be tangibly depict, depicted to onlookers. It was far worse than the scourging, far worse than the crown of thorns, the beatings, the nails, far, far worse. And I don't say that to kind of shy away from the physical pain inflicted on the body of Jesus. The whipping from the cat of nine tails wasn't for the faint of heart. His flesh would literally be torn from his back, lacerations down to the muscles, nerves burning from blistering pain, the sort of beating that would leave a man disfigured. Traumatic stuff, but that was not all. The crown of thorns have had to have been agonizing as they were pressed down on his brow. They hit him in the head with sticks, so the thorns would just dig deeper and deeper into his skull. The nails that pierced him as he hung on the tree was an unspeakably gruesome experience. 
that's not why Jesus is praying in Luke twenty-two forty-two for the cup to go away. You see, he wasn't afraid of that sort of barbaric torture. You see, he wasn't the first person to ever hang on a cross, and he certainly wouldn't be the last. Even some of the apostles themselves would be crucified, and they went bravely to the instrument of execution. So it's not like Jesus was more fearful of death than his followers. No. So we shouldn't presume that when preparing to go to the cross, Jesus was asking the Father to take away those things. Not at all. He was asking for the cup to be removed. What cup? What cup is Jesus talking about? And more importantly than what cup, what is in the cup? We find the answer in the Old Testament. We do see this uh, in numerous places. Psalm 11, verse 6, it says, Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning will be the portion of their cup. The fire and brimstone that rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah on account of their wickedness is the very same fire and brimstone that is reserved in the proverbial cup for all of those who do not believe. Jeremiah 25, 15 to 16. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations whom I send you to to drink it. And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. The picture here is startling. For as alcohol causes confusion and disorientation for those who drink in access, so too does God's wrath cause the same. In addition to terror, pain, and despair, for those who consume it, they are hit with such a blow that they are disoriented, distraught, and brought low. Job 21.20 says, Let his own eyes see his decay and let him drink of the wrath of the Almighty. No matter how glamorous the lives of the unrighteous may be, they will one day consume the white-hot anger of God that resides in that cup. Someone must drink the cup. This is frightening as you look at these texts. It says that the unbelievers will be force-fed God's wrath. Psalm 75, 8 says that the wicked must drink the cup. They must drain it, drink it down to its dregs, down to the bitter end. This is when someone drains a cup, drains the liquid from a cup, making it so dry that there is nothing left for anyone else. And those who die unrepentant will be made to consume the most terrifying thing they could ever swallow, the fierce, white-hot wrath of a holy God. It's reminiscent of the medieval practice of execution by molten metal. This would be where metal would be heated until it was a liquid and it'd be forced down the throat of the one sentenced to death, burning their mouth, their throat, and their insides until their bowels burst. As the metal would be heated to about 450 degrees Celsius, the person would be propped up with their mouth forced open. The molten metal would choke them, burn their lungs, rupture the organs, And within 10 seconds, the metal would solidify. And what's interesting is none of those things were what likely killed them. It was likely the steam that killed them first. But Jesus understood that the fierce wrath of God was the cup that he had to drink. It was the only way to propitiate the wrath of God and bring atonement. What we see in Jesus' prayer is that his human will was submitted to the divine will. 
His request for reprieve shows just how truly human he was. It wasn't weakness, but rather it reflected the only response a rational person could have when coming face to face with the cup of God's wrath. Aaron and others never truly understood the depths of this wrath. It was symbolized by the butchering of animals, skinning the carcass, gathering the lifeblood and sprinkling it throughout the Holy of Holies. They saw the hideousness of it up close, yet those animals hardly compared to what stood behind them, the fierce cup of God's wrath. The moments before Jesus' execution, he was having a, a realer grasp of divine wrath than anyone who has ever walked the planet. He went straight in to the furnace of divine judgment, experiencing far worse on the cross than the physical afflictions. Consider this also. When the Roman soldiers came to seize Jesus, the, the zealous Peter stepped up, wielding a sword in a feeble attempt to stop them from taking his Lord. But what does Jesus say in John 18, 11? Put the sword into its sheath. The cup which the Father has given to me, shall I not drink it? Jesus was so adamant about drinking the cup of God's wrath despite knowing how horrifying it would be that he would not allow anyone else to disrupt the divine plan. Instead, Jesus put his lips to the cup. He tipped it back and drank it down he, all the way to the end, the very wrath of God that he did not deserve. Make no mistake about it. He didn't just simply sip it as a wine bibber. He did not simply take a small sip and kind of spit it back out. It was not some quick taste of a palate cleansing drink. No, Jesus drained the cup. He drank it down to the dregs. This is the essence of propitiation that brings atonement. Propitiation is often understood to be the, the pinnacle of the work of atonement. The Godward nature of propitiation, the satisfaction of the wrath of Yahweh, is depicted in Scripture as the preeminent purpose of this very day. After all, the wrath of God is mankind's most pressing issue especially since Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And yet that's not all that's involved in the Day of Atonement. So let us turn our attention to the second result brought by the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. So on this day, Aaron not only dealt with the wrath of God, but also the iniquity of man. Through his priestly work, he not only propitiated God, he expiated sin. So let's look at that, verses 20 to 28 of our text. When he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and can confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness." The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments which he had put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. He shall bathe his body with water in a holy place and put on his clothes and come forth and offer his burnt offerings and the burnt offerings of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people." Then he shall offer up and smoke the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The one who released the goat is the scapegoat then. He shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water. Then afterwards he shall come into the camp. But the bull of the sin offering 
and the goat of the sin offering whose body was brought in to make atonement in this place, he shall take outside the camp and they shall burn their hides, their flesh and their refuse in the fire. Then the one who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water. Then afterwards, he shall come into the camp. You've heard it said that when you die, you can't take anything with you. Well, that's not exactly true. There's one thing that many men spend their lives accumulating that will, in fact, follow them beyond the grave. Sin. Every moment of faithless, loveless rebellion against God represents the accumulation of guilt and sin. You see, you need your sin removed. And this brings us to the second result of a pure sacrifice. So while the goat slaughtered for the Lord was symbolizing propitiation, the scapegoat symbolizes expiation. So what's the difference between propitiation and expiation? When it comes to propitiation, the prefix of the word pro means for, indicating that God's attitude towards guilty sinners is changed from being against them to being for them. So propitiation is the satisfaction of God's wrath that brings about a change in our relationship with him from being enemies to sons. On the other hand, when it comes to expiation, the, the prefix X means out of or from, indicating the removal or taking away of something. Expiation is the removal of guilt and sin that sinners have accumulated by their rebellion. Like two sides of the same coin, propitiation and expiation are twin truths of the atonement. So in order for sinners to be reconciled to God, God must be propitiated and sin must be expiated. In our text, the two goats actually constituted a single sin offering. Although Aaron carried out separate acts for each goat, his atoning work rested upon their united purpose. Those for whom Aaron made propitiation were those for whom Aaron made expiation. So when it comes to atonement, you can't have one without the other. The need for expiation is found in the fact that Aaron sacrificed the first goat and he cleansed the tabernacle with, with its blood. But one final work remained in order for the Israelites to maintain pure fellowship with God. Their own sin had to be removed. You see, if there wasn't a scapegoat, then Aaron would have been wasting his time when sprinkling the sacrificial goat's blood throughout the tabernacle. If he, if he didn't get rid of the source of defilement, the sin itself, it would have been all for naught. The first goat satisfied God's justice, but it didn't remove the root cause of defilement. Both aspects were necessary to maintain fellowship with God. So without this second goat, Aaron's priestly work would have been like a mother who meticulously cleans her house only for children with muddy boots to be walking around behind her. So to address this problem, Aaron performed the work of expiation. He purified the people by removing their sins, removing the problem. The live goat, the second of the two goats chosen by lots, was to be used uh, and be called the scapegoat. And it refers to the fact that the second goat was sent away while bearing the sins of the people. Aaron was instructed to place both of his hands on the head of the scapegoat and confess the sins of the people. And so by placing his hands on the head of the substitute, Aaron reenacted the glorious doctrine of imputation, symbolically transferring from one party to another. So rather than the Israelites bearing their own guilt, God graciously provided a way for it to be placed somewhere else. After all, sin just doesn't simply disappear by virtue of time. It's not swept under the rug. It's not merely written off as a loss in the ledger. It's not as if time allows God to forget it as the pain of sin can slip from the human mind, for God is timeless and omniscient. 
His memory does not grow weaker with age. Time does not heal all wounds. I've heard many unbelievers excuse their sin by saying it happened when they were young, you know, at a time when they, you know, committed the crime and as if somehow that makes it better. However, this is not the case with God. Time merely makes you a long-term fugitive. And in God's judicial system, there are no statute of limitations. The only way for sinners to have their criminal record expunged is by imputing them to someone else. Thus is the spiritual head of his people. Aaron was to issue a formal prayer of their collected unworthiness to God and transfer their sins to the live goat in order to obtain mercy. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Three acts of this ritual indicate just how comprehensive it was. First, two hands were placed on the goat, as opposed to just a single hand, which was used in other animal sacrifices. Secondly, it was the high priest, Aaron, who placed his hands on the goat, as opposed to an average Levitical priest who did it at other times. And finally, with the sacrificial goat, the, the live goat, with the, the threefold designation in our text says their iniquities, their transgressions, and sins are imputed to the goat, as opposed to only some kind of a particular sin committed. So more than a superficial ritual, this confession represented a thorough, soul-cleansing plea to the Lord. As Leviticus 16.22 states, the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities. All the people, all their sins, all transferred. So what was to be done with the goat? Now that the sin of the people was imputed to the goat, what next? Our text says Aaron would hand the live goat over to an appointed man who was selected to lead the goat out into the wilderness. You see, he couldn't just let the goat roam around the city, around the tents of the people, or even worse, back into the tabernacle. I mean, this thing was carrying sin. Where it went, sin went with it. So one man was designated to take the goat into the wilderness, never to be seen again, out on its own. Perhaps the goat would die by natural causes, starvation, dehydration, injury, or wild beasts. The way in which the goat met its demise after it was abandoned was ultimately inconsequential for the work of expiation, so long as it remained far, far away, never to be seen again. And as I mentioned last time, legend has it that they would kill it outside in the wilderness so it could never wander back, bringing the sins back into the presence of God. God forbid. So a man was appointed. He waited eagerly like a runner set on the blocks. He was waiting eagerly for this task. The quicker he could get the goat out of town, the better. However, it also says this man had to be an able-bodied man who knew the wilderness, who could travel on his own for about 20 to 40 miles round trip through the roughest of terrain. The tougher the terrain, the better to prevent the goat from easily returning. He had to be committed to this task for the removal of the sins of the people depended on it. I mean, imagine the gut-wrenching horror you'd feel if you woke up one day after the Day of Atonement and you see the, the live goat trotting back into the camp that supposedly had all your sins on it. That reappearance the redefilement of the people in the tabernacle would represent a catastrophic disruption in fellowship with God. On the other hand, when properly done, the relief that would be felt by the people on account of such a vivid depiction of expiation is inestimable. Compared to the act of propitiation, the, the level of personal consolation offered by this act 
may have been even greater since the act of expiation was entirely visible to the people. They were able to watch the scapegoat march off from the campsite in contrast with the sprinkling of the sacrificial goat's blood on the Ark of the Covenant. You see, when Aaron satisfied God's wrath, he dealt with sin in the Holy of Holies on his own. But when he removed the people's sin, he dealt with them open for all to see. Knowing that their high priest was representing them, selecting substitutes for them, praying for them, and slaying an animal on their behalf would provide some sweet comfort. But seeing the depiction of their guilt physically leaving their presence would be unparalleled. Every sinful thought word and deed was confessed and carried away. The live goat symbolically bore their sin and irrevocably brought it to a location far, far away, dismissed, removed, purged, expiated. Butchery, as we described, is an inherently dirty job, much like expiation and dealing with sin. It is a defiling task to the lowest degree. So one final step for all the Levites who were involved in the Day of Atonement rituals was to thoroughly wash themselves in order to avoid recontaminating everything that they had just done with the corruption of sin. All the priests who were involved in the spiritually dirty task of propitiation or expiation needed to cleanse themselves. And after the final bathing, finally, after all the day's events, finally, after the, the workers were clean, finally, all the people were clean, the tabernacle was clean, at least for the moment. Truth be told, even if the priests carefully and correctly carried out their duties, they'd have to do it all over again the following year. And why is that? Because expiation does not happen by the type by the shadow. These rituals never actually take away sin. Hebrews 10, 11, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. The guilt of sin cannot ever be permanently removed by the animal. The defilement of sin could not be comprehensively expunged by the changing of clothes or by the washing of the body. The stain of sin could not be sufficiently removed by a bath. Israelites who recognized these inadequacies would know that they needed something greater if their sins were to be fully and finally expiated. Of course, the New Testament virtually begins with a declaration that something greater had come. John 1 29, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is true expiation. He picked up our sins and he carried them outside of the city. Hebrews 13, 11, and 12, it says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. There our sins were, as hideous as they were, and he carried it off. The Lamb of God had finally come to do what the scapegoat could only foreshadow. On the Day of Atonement, Aaron and the priests held his two hands on the scapegoat, confessed his sin over it, imputed guilt to it. On the day he was crucified, the Lord Jesus Christ, serving as both priest and sacrifice, bore sin in his own body, imputing to himself the guilt of others. 
1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And just as the spotless scapegoat received the defilement of sin, so too did Christ become a curse when he took upon himself the wretched, hideous rebellion of humanity. Far from being mere symbolism, actual sins of actual people were placed upon the sinless Savior and expiated and propitiated in his sacrifice. So what have we seen so far, the result of a pure sacrifice? First, propitiation and expiation. And one final thing, permanence, permanence, finality. Let me read the remainder of our text, 29 to 34. This shall be a permanent statute to you in the seventh month on the 10th day of the month. You shall humble your souls and do not do any work whether the native or the alien or the sojourners among you, for it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statute. So the priest who is anointed and, ob and obtained to serve as priest in his father's place shall make atonement. He shall thus put on the linen garments, the holy garments, and make atonement for the holy sanctuary. And he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall also make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. Now you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once every year. And just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so Aaron did. When you read this, all the details, all the daunting methods necessary to follow down to the very last minutia, you learn one startling fact at the end of all. It wasn't a one-time fix-all. It wasn't a one-time cure. It didn't actually solve the problem. And Moses tells Aaron, this is a permanent statute. So in order for the people to continually be in a right relationship with God, the priest had to do this yearly. And it's not like God was open to options on the matter either. It wasn't really optional. Moses wasn't having some kind of a conversation with Aaron just suggesting that he do this once a year. It was a permanent statute. Much like the annual Passover feast or the burning of the lamp in the tabernacle, the financial care of the priests, the phrase permanent statute was repeated three times in the text that I just read in verse 29, 31, and 34. The day of atonement was to occur every seventh month of the year. According to the Jewish calendar, that was about October on the 10th day. You also see here the Israelites were to hold their souls in humble submission to God. This is another way of telling them that they were to fast and to treat this day as an additional Sabbath. Obtained from food and work allowed the Israelites to focus on godly sorrow over their sins. You see, merriment, joy, happiness, carefree festivity all indicate a lack of solemnness necessary for the occasion. Sin was being dealt with. This was no laughing matter. A holy God required an innocent substitute in order for sinful men to continue in fellowship is cause for humble contrition, not whimsical merriment. Unlike other annual events in which there would be laughter and feasting, and this was to be a Sabbath of solemn rest, giving the people the opportunity to contemplate their spiritual bankruptcy. Another reason for this prescription to fast and not work was because rather than tending to crops, managing their affairs at home, or performing other duties that would characterize, you know, a typical day, the expectation was that all the Israelites would gather together at the tabernacle in order to observe this event. They all had to be there. 
This was an event every Israelite must attend or be counted as unclean. No matter where they lived, no matter how far away, no matter how close, no matter what their social status was, whether it be a nobleman or a low person like a slave, every man, woman, and child was to make the trip to Israel on this great day. So if you don't drop everything and attend, you were considered far worse than ceremonially unclean, but unforgiven by God. I imagine that this was likely a financial hardship for many. They were likely some families that would have to forfeit greater yields of their crops to be sure to attend, or they'd have to leave some matters unfinished or sell possessions so they could make enough money to afford the trip, but no one was to miss this event. It's not as if the Israelites merely marked this on a day of their calendars and stayed at home kind of twiddling their thumbs, counting down the hours where they could eat and work again, although that attitude sadly characterized most of apostate Israel in later centuries. Instead, they, they made the sacrifice to make the trip. They stated their hearts and attention on what was to transpire. On the Day of Atonement, they were commanded to afflict their souls, so to speak, even though it was a, it was a Sabbath rest. This was to be a painful remembrance for them. They had that day to remember that their sin was not put away once for all and forever by all the types and ceremonies. And therefore they had again to humble themselves and come before God with sacrifices, which they knew could never truly put away sin. Every year, year after year after year. I mean, think of what it would have been like the first time Aaron entered in the Holy of Holies, he would, have, he would have sprinkled blood on shiny gold, fresh acacia wood. But from then on, whenever Aaron or subsequent high priests would enter into the Holy of Holies, what would they see? Stained wood, spotted gold, old, dried out blood from past years. Blood splattered, stained wood and gold, caked on there for years after years after years. You can imagine how foul the smell would be, how dried blood essentially touched everything in there. Hundreds of years. Caked blood upon caked blood. It was a putrid thing. The animal sacrifices had to be repeated year after year after year in order to atone for the sins of the people. They never washed it with water because water doesn't clean in the presence of God blood did. Every year, a cute little innocent goat was slaughtered to show the contrast in our heinousness before God. Yearly, something undeserving, innocent, without defect was put to death. And not just put to death, that, that almost sounds docile. They were slaughtered, butchered, massacred. And each year, the high priest would get an even uglier image of the heinousness of sin when he would walk into the blood-stained Holy of Holies. It would look uglier and more gruesome each year with a new layer of blood being added to the gore. And as the priest would see the room of blood, he was reminded of the inadequacy of the sacrifices on that day. Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
In fact, if the day of atonement had finally or fully propitiated God's wrath, the high priest would not have needed to offer more sacrifices every year. God's anger would have been permanently satisfied by that first act of propitiation. And that's precisely what you see in Hebrews 10, 1 and 2. It says this, For the law, since it was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin? Instead, the blood on the ark was but a shadow of better things to come, things that would fully and finally satisfy God's wrath. What's even better is that unlike Aaron's annual effort, Jesus made propitiation one time for all, Hebrews 7, 27. Aaron's propitiatory work was a shadow, Jesus's propitiatory work, the substance. So what have we seen? The results of a perfect sacrifice is propitiation, expiation, and permanence. A permanence not because of the perpetual sacrifice yearly done, but a permanence that those you know, perpetual sacrifices merely pointed to. A final sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus himself. Spurgeon said this, quote, We see we are enemies, and his atonement purges us of enmity and makes us citizens. We are lepers, and by his stripes we are healed as to be received among the clean. By nature, we are only fit to be flung into those fires which burn up corrupt and offensive things, but his sacrifice makes us so precious in the sight of God that all the forces of heaven accept us. Once black as night, we are so purged that we shall walk with him in white, for we are worthy. If that sacrificial system was so great, why did it come to an end? Well, as Christians, we know. We know the answer. It was merely a shadow of good things to come. Despite the wonderful provision that God made for the Israelites through the Day of Atonement, the stark reality was that even the high priest needed a high priest. Even the representative needed a representative. Their priesthood wasn't permanent. It ended when they died. What this indicates is just how inadequate their priesthood was. I mean, after all, a dead representative is a bad representative. But by God's grace, we have a greater representative, a greater high priest who holds his priesthood in permanence. Hebrews 7.23, the, the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Truly, we do have a greater representative. After all, Aaron could represent the people annually, but not permanently. The problem with Leviticus 16, the problem with Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is it happened every year, year after year, after year after year. It's what Hebrews calls a foreshadowing. Now, this was done over and over and over again because it was never fulfilled. It was never complete. It was never finished. And it was never finished until one day on that dreaded tree, Jesus hung, and there he cried, it is finished. Atonement made. He died once. That's half-hacks in the Greek, never to be repeated. In the death of Jesus, our sins were atoned for, and he never brings them back up. 
Let me end with this regarding the permanence of Jesus' priesthood, the perfect satisfaction brought by his sacrifice. So in the last moments of his life, we see the, the wrath of God was truly satisfied, sin expiated, permanence in his atonement based on those last words, John 19, 30. He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Satisfying the wrath of God came from his lips while on the cross itself. Although his last words are translated as three words in English, it is finished. It's actually only one word in the Greek, tetelestai. It is a word that speaks of finality or completion. And undoubtedly, as Christ's life was ending on the cross, he was indeed coming to the final part of his mission. God the Father sent his son to be the very purpose of being a propitiatory sacrifice. That's 1 John 4.10. But it should be noted that in ancient times, the word telos was used as a reference to a revenue obligation, the fulfillment of a financial burden. And ultimately, that is a more precise way of understanding why tetelestai came from the lips of Christ on the cross. After all, the Bible indicates that when we sin, a debt is incurred. For the wages of sin, the wages of death, or debt is what? It's death. On the ledger in the Greco-Roman world, when someone paid their debt, they wrote these words, tetelestai, paid in full. So with that in mind, when Jesus says tetelestai, what he was actually stating was that a sin debt had been paid, paid in full. On the cross, Christ's account was burdened with a debt that he didn't incur, yet he willingly and graciously shed his own blood to bring its balance to zero. The Apostle Paul uses that same language, Colossians 2, 13 to 14. He says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of the flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, taken it out and nailed it to the cross. This certificate of death spoken of by Paul it has historical significance. When someone had committed a crime worthy of crucifixion, a sign was placed on the criminal's cross indicating why he was paying for his life and debt to Rome. And Paul is telling us what is nailed to the cross of the headboard of Jesus Christ, our sin. He might as well have written Matthew 1.21. He came to save his people from their sin. And that's precisely what we see in Christ's atoning work. Sin confessed with tears, sins which cause the very heart to bleed, killing sins, damning sins. This is the kind of sin for which Jesus died. Don't be content with, you know, a sham savior. For our Lord is a, a real savior, savior who really died and died for real sin. And oh, how this ought to comfort you that you were sadly bearing the pressing burden of a repulsive life. You too were crushed into the mire of despondency beneath a load that you could not bear because of your guilt. But there we see him at the beginning of his earthly ministry. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you today and we are thankful for the reminder of the permanence of Jesus' work. Lord, that he only had to die one time. Lord, I pray that we would just be transformed by that in our hearts and in our minds. 
Lord, that we would worship you on account of it for our faithful high priest who stands to make intercession, who made propitiation and expiation on our behalf, and that he never forsakes us, our perfect high priest. And in his name we pray, amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from our guest speaker. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Please note, law prohibits the unauthorized copying or distributing of this audio file. Requests for permission to copy or distribute are made in writing to the Grace Life Pulpit. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.